Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for joining us for another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today is Frank Ellis. He's the author of The Damned and the Dead, The Eastern Front Through the Eyes of Soviet and Russian Novelists. And this came out with the University of Kansas, uh, Press of Kansas, one of the premier publishers of military history uh, in 2011. Uh, Frank, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure. Uh, what we'd like to do is to get you to introduce yourself briefly and then um, talk about how you came to write this book about Russian war novels. Okay, uh, right. Okay, it's quite an interesting story, actually, I think. Well, I think it is. Maybe you'll read it. your listeners might disagree. But um, uh, I served in the military. I was in the Airborne and uh, Special Forces uh, for 13 years. Um, uh, that's the Parachute Regiment in Britain. You'd call it 101st Airborne or 82nd Airborne in the U.S. And I also served in the British uh, Special Air Service, which is the British equivalent of the uh, SEALs and uh, Special Forces Green Berets. And uh, one of the areas in which I specialized in during the Cold War uh, was uh, the National People's Army of East Germany and the Soviet military stationed inside East Germany. And one of our primary missions uh, would have been during a, a Warsaw Pact attack on West Germany would have been to attack the Soviet main supply routes coming through East Germany. And I used to spend a lot of time studying the uh, terrain, the topography, um, with, a, with a view to promoting what one hoped would have been some effective uh, ambushes on their, on their supply lines and also attacking and killing their divisional headquarters staff as well to break down, uh, disrupt command and control. So having left the uh, military, um, my uh, sort of interests really um, were very academic. And so a university post was uh, what uh, beckoned. And I taught for a year at the University of Las Vegas. Um, I did Russian and German there. And then I taught at uh, British University, University of Leeds. And then I left that. And I'm now a completely uh, freelance uh, independent researcher. And, and I've always had this interest in the war literature side as well. It's not just the Soviet-Russian war literature, but also German. Americans got some very good stuff as well, some excellent stuff. Um, and so it seemed to me that this was an area in Russian studies which really required a, a, a serious um, attempt to look at it. Because for, for one very obvious reason, hardly anybody had looked at it. And really, this is an, quite an amazing um, gap in, in Soviet-Russian studies. Quite remarkable indeed that given that this literature has been well, really around since 1941 onwards, and it's still being produced even now. It is quite remarkable that there has not been, over this period, until my book was published in 2011, a, a, a single monograph devoted almost entirely to this subject. Quite remarkable. So that's really where I've come from. And is this, is this true in Russian as well? Uh, no, 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 it's not. No, no, Russians, of course, are, have, got, have published a great deal of material on this. It's a ma- it still is a major theme. Throughout the Cold War, it was certainly the case, but it's also a battlefield as well, because one of the problems of Soviet-Russian literature is anybody, well, it's not just the war uh, theme, uh, it was subjected to a ferocious regime of censorship from 1918 onwards, in which it was only formally abolished on the 1st of August 1990, when Gorbachev signed into law the first, as it was then, it was still Soviet, Soviet press law, which outlawed prior censorship. Up until then, censorship was a huge problem. And uh, war writers, uh, given the extreme sensitivity of the theme in the Soviet Union, um, war writers were subjected to all kinds of censorship as well. And so what you had here was another battle going on between the the censors and indeed the writers. And I suppose the most famous example of this, well, the most infamous example, uh, I wrote the first English language study of uh, Vasily Grossman, who uh, wrote that remarkable Stalingrad novel, Life and Fate. And what happened to him, I I suppose, really explains the problem very nicely. Um, Grossman was a war correspondent for Red Star, which is the Soviet military newspaper. He covered the Battle of Stalingrad for about four to five months. And he wrote uh, all kinds of really, really good articles, actually, for the Red Star. And then after the war, 
um, he wrote part one of what was to be a two-part novel devoted to the battle. Part one was called For a Just Cause, um, and a lot of people have dismissed it as a, um, as a kind of a Stalinist conformist novel. It's, it's clearly nothing of the sort. But after Stalin died and uh, Khrushchev's um, uh, uh, partial denunciation of Stalin in 1956, Grossman got down to writing the sequel, Life and Fate. Now, Grossman actually did believe, and this is quite remarkable, he really did believe that it would be possible for this novel to be published in the Soviet Union. And it's a remarkable novel. Um, I mean, ha have you read it by any chance? No. Oh, right, okay, right. Is it available well, in English? Uh, yeah, oh, yes, it, there is a good English translation of it. And it, uh, I think how well it's sold in the U.S., I don't know. It sold remarkably well in Germany when it came out in German translation in 84. Uh, it did very well in Italy, very well in France. Didn't do well. I don't think, it did, actually, I don't think it did so well over here either, um, for, for reasons which I don't fully understand. But the, the point is of this novel is that one of the highlights in the novel uh, is an interrogation scene between an SS officer and a Bolshevik commissar. And the SS officer says to the commissar that you and I are not enemies. You and I are really mirror images of one. Uh, we are reflections of one another. Our real enemy are the liberal democracies. And today we're killing the Jews in the name of a per perfected society. And you're killing, you kill the Kulaks in the 30s. Um, but you and I will learn from one another. So if we... If one of us loses the war, then we will live on in your victory and vice versa. Well, this is, you know, when uh, Susloff, who's the uh, chief ideologue of the Communist Party, uh, the, the manuscript was seized by the KGB. They turned up at Grossman's flat, arrested the manuscript. Note, arrested the manuscript. They left Grossman alone. And Grossman tried to get the manuscript back, uh, uh, returned, and he went to see Susloff. And Susloff told him that your novel, uh, uh, Dr. Zhivago, the scandal of Dr. Zhivago, had only just finished in 1960. Uh, Zhivago got the Nobel Prize, uh, Pasternak got the Nobel Prize, sorry. Um, and Susloff told Grossman that um, uh, Dr. Zhivago was a stinking little weed compared to your book. Your book is an atomic bomb. Were it published, it would destroy the Soviet Union. Now, the really interesting thing about this meeting is that uh, Suslov then told Grossman, maybe your novel will be published in about 300 years' time. Well, it was published in 1988. It was one of the major publication events of the Glasnost period uh, when the novel was first published, um, and truly remarkable. So that's an example of the censorship. Now, that's a spectacular example, but there are many, many other examples of where Writers have had uh, uh, their works more or less butchered and hacked to pieces by the censorship apparatus in order to get them into the public domain or in, published in the Soviet journals. good example would be uh, Kuznetsov's um, book called Babi Yar. Uh, Babi Yar is the, um, it literally means in Russian, Grandmother's Ravine. Well, it was a site of a mass murder of Jews in September 1941. About 35,000 were subjected to death by mass machine gunning. And um, Kuznetsov was, um, uh, wrote about this in the novel, and the novel was censored, cut to pieces, and eventually he defected to this country in, I think, about 65 or 66. So these are just these are some of the better-known examples of censorship, but they're the ones that have hit the headlines in the West. But outside of these examples, there are plenty more of writers who've waged a, a, a non-stop battle to get some kind of uh, uh, non-conformist, uh, non-ideologically acceptable view of the war in, into print. And I think they've been quite successful. I really do. Some of them have. The censors were not... They certainly tried very hard to suppress uh, all kinds of unwelcome truths and insights about the war. And they had success, but they didn't have it all their own way, it has to be said. What, am I correct in, in reading into this that, the, um, that there's a certain irony to the fact that it's in precisely war novels, which which can, they don't always, or maybe even usually, but can certainly celebrate the regime and, and promote patriotism, were locations where surprising levels of dissent were able to, to sneak through. Yes I, think, yes, I think there is something to be said to that as well. And the other problem, of course, is, is that the war... You see, one of the problems about the, uh, the, the Great Fatherland War, the Great Patriotic War, is that um, it wasn't just a war between two totalitarian regimes. You see, the trouble is... One of the big problems about the war was that it brought it was it it it, 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 it brought to the fore it opened reopened wounds which well maybe they've not never really been closed in the first place. One of the central themes, for example, in Vasil Bukov's uh, literature, um, Vasil Bukov is, the, is I think probably the outstanding exponent of this theme in all Soviet Russian letters, not a Russian, of course, a Belarusian. 
Um, but one of the central themes in all of his works, uh, be it the small unit sub-stories uh, or, the, or the partisan warfare, is the way in which mass collectivization comes back to halt the regime when the Germans invaded. Um, you have to bear in mind that the, 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 the Ukrainians have a word for this now. They call it holomador, which means mass death by, uh, mass death by starvation. And during the 1930s, Stalin collectivized the entire agriculture of the Ukraine and the Baltics and the, well, the Belarus and the, mainly Ukraine. And it led to some, some a minimum of six million dead in the starvation famine, the terror famine, as Robert Conquest called it, and probably another four million, maybe five million dying of hypothermia, disease, insurrections, deportations to, to, to Siberia. And it's an astonishing event. And... Of course, those survivors of this, when the Germans came with promises of abolishing the, uh, uh, the collective farms, this was a hugely effective recruiting sergeant for the German army. And it's a major theme in, in virtually all of uh, Buikov's works. And indeed, Grossman picks up on this as well. Um, so what, what appears to be just a war between National Socialist Germany and the Soviet Union is, in fact, a whole series of wars and disputes and, and, uh, and bitter conflicts going on, all, all interacting with one another, all changing people's loyalties according to the change of the military situation. So it makes the whole picture, quite, in, some, in some respects, quite, quite a complicated picture. I, I was struck too, as both as an as an American citizen and a scholar of Germany, the w- the way in which um, national literatures are are constrained and um, uh, well constrained by the the kind of national mythology about the war. So, in other words, a dissenting view in the Soviet Union, a victor country, but one w- where this is you know within this with this totalitarian society versus what would constitute maybe a, a dissenting or an anti-war novel in the United States, a victor country, uh, but a, a freer society versus Germany, loser of the war, where, you, where it would, you know, drawing that distinction between the regime that fought the war and the, you know, and the protagonists of the novel was, was in some ways essential to, to establishing that kind of mythology that, that the war literature was building. Yes, one of the problems. Yes, well, one of the problems is there's no doubt. First of all, um, the Soviet Party, the Soviet state apparatus, tried uh, very hard and uh, to co-opt the, 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 the war for its own purposes. The war was the victory of Marxism, Leninism uh, over fascism, as they often incorrectly refer to the Nazis. It was the victory of the Soviet system over the, uh, um, the, the Nazi system, and also, in, and, and also during the context of the Cold War post-1946 in Churchill's Fulton, Missouri speech, it was also a, um, a victory over all forms of capitalism as well. The real problem is, is that the, I think about these, these, the war literatures of the, of the various belligerent states. For America, I don't think the war literature really is a huge problem in terms of argument. For most Americans, uh, it was uh, a job that had to be done. It's business as usual. The war is a, is a part of World War II, that is, is a part of America's history, which Americans celebrate and remember. But, you know, it's, it clearly doesn't feature to anywhere near the same extent as it, as it does in Russia, for obvious reasons, in terms of the millions of casualties and devastation. That's clear. Uh, Britain, again, I think probably had a good war in terms of its, the way it sees itself. The Germans, it's quite interesting now what's happening in Germany, it seems to me, because... Um, the, you, you only have to look at the, 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 uh, the well, Omar, I can only describe it as an outcry, which um, uh, uh, accompanied the publication of uh, Gunter Grass's most recent novel, In Krebsgang, in 2002. The idea that Germans here uh, can never be permitted to be victims, they can only be seen as perpetrators and evildoers, I think this, is a, this is a, a causes an enormous uh, uh, intellectual stress in German society today. It really does. Um, the, the facts of the matter, and also, it's not... I mean, the, the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff, uh, well, was, it was a terrible thing that happened, and the people who died in it were innocents. They were, they were not concentration camp guards. Um, well, you look at Jörg Friedrich's book, for example, on the RAF bombing campaign in German cities. You know, nearly a million Germans were killed in this campaign as well. Dresden, I've just come back from Dresden. I was in Dresden earlier this month, and... You know, I look at the, the Frauenkirche and I look at the, 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 the city uh, and I, you know, having served in the military, I think, I, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, I feel a sense of, oh, maybe just the odd shimmer of guilt here. I think it did be really cause 35,000 deaths in this city on, on Fashing Tuesday in 45. And yes, we did. 
uh, and you begin to think, my God, this did happen. This is total war. Then the Germans, of course, uh, the other the other parts of the Germans suffering at the end of the war is that all the Germans being dispossessed and driven out of their ancient homelands in uh, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, uh, parts of huge parts of Poland. You know, Germans did suffer. I mean, the mass rape of German women, m- m- most infamously, of course, in Berlin, but it happened all over East Prussia. And the, and Germans somehow, you sense in Germany today, that Germans even now in 2012 are some it's somehow it's somehow not quite respectable to talk about this is certainly not to see Germans uh, as victims. Germans, there seems to be a stratum in German society, which, uh, and it's not just the Germans, I think the British are quite guilty here as well, who want to impose permanently on German, Germany that you were the perpetrators and therefore the idea that you were in any possible sense victims is simply not, it, it, not, not possible and, and somehow morally dubious. It's a way almost of trying to downplay the crimes of uh, the Nazi regime. Yeah, well, you, uh, you're you're treading dangerous ground there. You'll get me talking about Germany too much, but um, I don't know if you were in Dresden before they reconstructed the Frauenkirche during the Cold War. During no, I, no, I, no, I wasn't. No, no, I wasn't actually. No, during the Cold War period. No, I wasn't. No. You weren't. You weren't invited in anyway. Right? No, 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 no. <laughs> but they, of course, it was left as rubble by the by the East German regime, and there was yes, a well, sign yes, prominently yes. placed in front of it. Um, as a a manmal, which is that peculiar German word, it's it's uh, like a warning a, a warning memorial yeah. to uh, uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was something about capitalist aggression or well, yeah, well, yes, American... basically the, the regime, the Socialist Unity Party, clearly exploited it for their own particular purposes as well. So you know, war memorials, of course, are very vulnerable to this. There's no doubt about that at all. You know, any any uh, any regime or whatever political color can exploit them for its own ends, and that clearly does happen. No doubt about that. Well, so, I mean, you talk about an enormous number of novels, and you've, you've emphasized uh, life and fate among, among them. Are there others? I mean, I'm almost thinking about maybe spinning this off as a kind of discussion on the New Book Network about uh, Russian war novels in translation, or maybe a comparative, compare Krebs Gun with, uh, with life and fate or something like that. Well, um, well, would be kind of interesting. Well, the, the trouble is, see, this is a problem. Um, lots of Russian war novels are simply not available in English translation. This is the problem, number one. And some of the ones that were translated during World War II and immediately after are not particularly good translations anyway. Um, so that there, is, there is a problem there straight away. Um, Grossman's Life and Fate has been translated. His other major Stalingrad novel, For a Just Cause, Zaprave Dila in Russian, has not been translated. Um, You've got um, the major war novel by Viktor Astafiev, which was published in the early 90s, The Damned and the Dead, Proklati Ubiti. That's not been translated, and I, I'm not aware that anybody's planning to translate it. It was certainly, it's a, it's a remar- remarkable war novel. My God, that is an amazing war novel. And some of his other works as well, none, none of those have been uh, translated into English. Um, and then the other, the other writer, who's, uh, uh, some of his works have been translated, but again, the translations are not particularly good, is Vassil Bukov. And he is a truly outstanding writer. Uh, and his novels cover the, well, his short stories, obviously, they cover the period basically from 1959 right up to, he died in 2003. He was still writing about 2001, 2002, and his novels are truly remarkable. They really are absolutely amazing stuff. So there's that. You've also got. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not quite certain whether the uh, the general in his army, the General Ivo Army, by Georgi Vadimov. I'm not quite certain whether that's been translated. I've only read it in the in the Russian. But all of these are, you know, are major works dealing with the war, and also. They're, they're, they're particularly the Victor Astafiev, because he's writing in the 1990s, and the same Georgi Vladimir, who, who had his novel published in 1994. These are novels written after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so the, the question of censorship, uh, discoloring them and disfiguring them, doesn't arise in any way at all. So, that, so it's very interesting to read these novels as well. They are, and they are remarkable. They do, I mean, for example, the General's Army deals with this, this theme, its critical theme is the collaboration theme in General Vlasov. And this is a really... Uh, bitterly contested theme in Russia today. The, the, still today, the, the question of, uh, of uh, Andrei Vlasov's collaboration with the Germans. So, and it must it must be the case that even if the censorship law changes, there are still uh, issues facing these novelists. I mean, whether stemming from the the Putin regime itself or just from the general um, social atmosphere that determines 
what I mean, a, what yes, I think there is. What, yes, yes, I mean, yes, exactly. Yes, I mean, you've got the yeah. There, there are pressures to conform, and you can send. Yeah, and, and authors are well. Vadimov, of course, is now dead. Um, but you, you, and also at the time he wrote this novel, he was a literary exile living in Germany. He'd been forced to leave during the Cold War. So he was regarded by some of the mainstream uh, critics living in Russia still as a, as a kind of a literary Vlasovite himself, like a sort of a literary traitor, and therefore you know a fair game. Um, but yes, there are there there, there is uh, there are pressures on these writers or and, and social pressures. But um, you know the, the, the censorship, the, the KGB or the FSB are not going to come along and arrest them. And it all, the other thing as well, which needs to be said here, and this and due tribute must be paid to the FSB itself. Um, which is the federal federal Slutsky Zapasnitsy? This is a successor body to the uh, KGB. This organisation has done has made enormous, massive contributions to uh, uh, uncovering, um, uh, exposing, uh, declassifying um, hitherto totally top secret documents. Absolutely remarkable what the, this organisation has done. Um, for example, the, the, the series they, they've got this series going. It's nearly complete now. It may actually be complete. Called the uh, agencies of state security during World War II. And each year of the war has got two volumes dedicated to it. There's part one, which covers January, uh, June, and then July to December. And every year of the war has got these two volumes. Well, these volumes are packed, jammed, solid with declassified documents. All, 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 most of them, top secret docs, which have been totally declassified and organized uh, under sections, and the entire documents are published in Russian. And it's an amazing collection of stuff. It really is amazing. And the, and the, the quality of presentation, the scholarship is simply outstanding. And I have to tell you as well, here's another thing as well on the censorship issue. I wrote to President Putin about, uh, let me see now, it would have been about eight years ago when he was president the last time round, and I wrote to him and I asked for access to a specific archive. Um, I got no reply, but I know the letter was delivered because we sent it uh, by a postal delivery service and his office had to sign for it. Well, I got no reply, but I turned up in, uh, I turned up in Moscow at the archive of the uh, Lubyanka, the former KGB headquarters, just uh, an ominous building in terms of Soviet and Russian history. I, I had an interview with the archivist, and he gave me the complete interrogation files of five German officers um, who had been arrested at Stalingrad uh, at the end of January 1943. Okay, now these officers have been responsible for running a... No, very few people know, even know about this camp. It's called Dulag 205. Dulag in German means Durchgangslager, it's a transit camp. Uh, well, this camp ha held about uh, two and a half, maybe as many as 4,000 Soviet prisoners of war. And from October 1942, as the winter uh, came in with a vengeance, up until January the 31st, 1943, when the camp was overrun by the Russians, there was about, the total death toll was about 3,000 Soviet prisoners of war died. Cannibalism was rife. There were arbitrary shootings and executions. Well, these officers were all arrested and subjected to about an 18-month period of interrogations and eventually handed over to Smirsch after April 1943 and they were put in front of the military tribunal, tried as war, cri uh, war criminals, uh, found guilty and executed. Well, I was given access to all of their files, all their interrogation files in both German and Russian. And I wrote a very long article about this, which was published in the uh, Journal of Slavic Military Studies. I think it was in March of 2006. So anybody interested in it could follow this up. It'll be, uh, you can, it'll be obviously in your library in the U.S. Um, and it's an amazing, uh, it was amazing to have, the, I got access to this material. Quite astonishing. The files in the archive reading room when I went in there, there was a, about, it must have been about five feet of A4 folders just piled up. It took me nearly eight or nine days to sort of read, to get through the stuff. You know, just so much of it. Remarkable account. And I, so I think there is a... Um, it, it's not all doom and gloom on this censorship by any means. No, I think that um, I detect a huge willingness now on the part of the uh, on the part of the, 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 the I nearly said the Soviet system. I've got to stop saying it. You get so used to saying Soviet, don't you? I detect a huge willingness uh, on the part of a number of Russian federal agencies to open up and talk about the war. Some are, are still fairly sensitive. But I have to tell you that when I go there and I ask, would it be possible to have access to this? Nine times out of ten, I have not been turned down at all. No, I haven't. So I, I, can, only, I can only speak for myself personally, but I, I, I have had fairly good access to the material I require.
Um, so, and so, so I detect this suggests to me that there is a willingness to open this stuff up. The one set of archive material that I'd like to see opened up, which as far as I'm aware has still under lock and key, uh, is uh, all the interrogation reports dealing with um, Andrei Vlasov when he was captured in 45 and then eventually executed along with many of his fellow officers. I, I, I take it, or maybe I'm assuming that this is uh, one part of the subject matter of this other publication that's mentioned uh, uh, in the in the materials with this book, the about the Russia's infosphere. Ah, that, that well, that tell, ah, well, that was another one. That tell, what I was dealing with there was the effect, uh, one of my central ideas in that book was the idea that uh, censorship destroyed the Soviet Union. I, I believe that censorship. Uh, basically, I coined this term of information deficit. And uh, it is my opinion that censorship, when uh, particularly um, see, the Soviet Union believed that it could control all flows of information, information. and ultimately, uh, you, yes, you can, but, uh, well, you can't completely, uh, but by, sowing, by so doing, you destroy the flows of information to the people who need it most, and therefore your whole technological base starts to suffer. As I think I argued, it's all well and good. It's no good being able to steal the latest computer secrets from Microsoft and all the software if you're not prepared to permit the diffusion of PCs in your own society. It's no good having Xerox photocopiers under wrap and key or, or stealing all the secrets from Xerox or whatever the latest uh, or Hewitt Packard and then not permitting people. The, the, the benefits of information technology only accrue when the benefits of technology are allowed to be enjoyed by everybody in the society, not just the secret police and the government agencies. And ultimately, I believe that censorship was a critical factor in bringing the whole system down. And it wasn't just so much the, uh, the censorship uh, of literature, war literature, um, uh, uh, the village prose, uh, literature generally, but also scientific scientists as well. Uh, if you can't access the latest journals from published in the United States or Britain or Germany and share your results, you're not going to get the critical mass of ideas. Money alone won't work. I mean, the, the Soviets put billions of dollar equivalents into these um, scientific um, towns. They had this town in Siberia, didn't they, called uh, Akademi Garadok, Akademichiski Garadok, Academic City. Money wasn't a problem. But if you can't talk about your, if you can't ask what if, questions and go beyond the limits of ideology, then effectively all the money in the world is going to help you progress. So I think that censorship is a, is a critical factor here. But, I, I, you know, um, but it, it's certainly nothing like the censorship you have in Russia now is nothing of the order compared to what existed prior to 1991, nowhere near it. So it's, it's the antithesis of that remark made to Grossman about his book being an atomic bomb. It was yes, the, exactly. Yes, the censorship of his book that insidiously... Uh, digs away at the system. Yes, it is. And it's not just Grossman as well. It's people like uh, Vasil Buikov as well and all these other writers digging away, uh, uh, like constantly gnawing away all the time at the, at the, um, at the writers, uh, at the system, you know, and the constant speculation as well. Uh, people are raising all these awkward questions and it just goes on and on and on and on. And the other thing I think which is really interesting about what happened to the Soviet Union, Gorbachev opened up the Soviet Union to, well, he liberated the, he, he liberalized the, the press and the media from 85 onwards. And he opened up the Soviet Union precisely at the moment when all these new IT media faxes, photo, well, not so much photocopies, but faxes, email, and personal computers were starting to become a big, big factor. And this meant that uh, he opened up the Soviet Union at the moment of maximum internal weakness um, um, in terms of discussion of ideas. And he rather naively believed that if you let all these writers publish their books of Life and Fate, Dr. Zhivago, and all the forbidden ones that were stamped on throughout the Soviet period, we, for example, Yevgeny Zemyatin's we, Andrei Platonov's Kotlovan, if you allowed them to publish all these books, the pressure for reform would go and the system could survive. Well, that's not what happened. Once the, once the floodgates of censorship, were, well, once the censorship apparatus was effectively uh, um, uh, prevented from functioning, and anything became possible more or less to openly to discuss, that was the end of the system, could not possibly survive that, uh, um, that kind of internal scrutiny and indeed external scrutiny as well. It was finished. It was finished. And I think that's what really finished broke the system in the end. Gorbachev didn't realize it. He thought he was going to protect the system, make some concessions. But of course, uh, by making these concessions, which he did, and he deserves credit for making them, he more or less accelerated the final demise of the, whole, the entire system all over Eastern Europe. Well, this is it's a fascinating topic, and maybe maybe I should go on and read the uh, read that book as as well. Um, 
Let's let's talk a little bit more about the the war novels. A couple of issues that struck me, or a couple of uh, themes that struck me, were the, the the kinds of events that these writers that you're considering stress. You know, in the United States, there are these iconic events: Pearl Harbor and D Day and um, the Battle of the Bulge. And so well, Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima would be a big one in, the, in America, surely. Oh, Iwo Jima. Yeah, course, I mean, I, 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 I have to say, well, I've seen that memorial two or three times, and I, I'm English, and I tell you what, it, it touches me very deeply. I have to say. It's an astonishing memorial. It's just an amazing memorial, and the whole battle of the regime itself is just truly astounding. But that, that, that those uh, navy that navy corpsmen, those marines, putting that flag up on Mount Suribachi, it's just a, a, it's a remarkable memorial. It really is truly remarkable. But the, so, of course, there are these Soviet corollaries, and one of the things that I mean, it, I guess, is not surprising when you are setting up these authors. Uh, and they're pointing out their dissenting uh, viewpoints, but that the summer of '41 is the setting for so many of the events that they that they depict that chaotic uh, summer, and it, the difficulty of managing a description of this incredible what looks like a devastating defeat from from day one um, in the context of censorship to be able to to even, even it's impossible. discuss those events. I think it's totally impossible. You, uh, whatever the writer tries to 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 depict, he's simply going to come up against one major obstacle, events. The sheer nature of the catastrophe, however ideologically orthodox a writer was, simply could not be glossed over. It was impossible. Absolutely impossible. And people, you know, Russians became very, well, not just Russians, so, uh, you know, Ukrainians, Belarusians, and all the rest of them, they became extremely adept at reading between the lines. Um, it was impossible. It was a thankless task. And the only way, really, the regime could deal with it in terms of the propaganda was simply to, you know, promote the, no the notion of heroic resistance and hope that um, something like that actually happened on the ground. But uh, in trying to deal with the problem, you know, uh, it was impossible. It was an impossible task um, and one that clearly uh, I can't think of any writer that managed to, to deal with. I mean, the, the way to deal with it is you have to deal with a particular rather than with the, the whole global picture. So, for example, Grossman tries to deal with it in one of his first wartime novels, The People Are Immortal. Narod uh, Bismertin, he deals with that there. Um, Simonov deals through the medium of poetry, and the poetry became very important in this early part of the war as well, because it was a way of uh, concentrating the emotions. Uh, and of course, by, by nature of uh, poetry, it avoided some of the concrete things which would more normally fall to the novelist rather than to the poet. So that was an effective way of getting around that. But the real sort of, it's always a mark of a regime's uh, you tend to find a, 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 a willingness to concede that things weren't as good as they should have been only from the standpoint of, say, a looming victory or the sense that, yes, OK, we've still got some way to go, but the worst is over. We've turned the corner. And you can find some of that in some of the latest stories in uh, early, early 43. Um, but certainly the early ones, it's all about 41, 42. It's all about promoting this idea of implacable resistance. The, the Grossman Stalingrad reporting is full of this sort of stuff as well. And then some of the later stuff, there's a hint of, yes, okay, reading between the lines, we weren't as well prepared as we should have been, but, you know, we're, we're in a stronger position now, so it, it's easy to make concessions uh, from a position of strength when you're, you know, backs against the wall and total death and destruction appears to be upon you, you're not really much in the mood for making concessions to, well, we're not doing a particularly good job, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the tactic that German authors use, I think, also to emphasize uh, victimization is to pull into that tight shot of the, the soldier in the trench under bombardment and so, so forth that, that kind of obliterates any need to discuss the political well, yes, context. This, yes, this is, context. Yes, I, yes, I think this is precisely what happens, in, for example, uh, in Gerlach's novel, uh, Die Verratene Armee, and also in Das Geduldige Fleisch. Both of those, you see that theme as well. Uh, um, well of course, Verratene Armee is a Stalingrad novel, but uh, Das Geduldige Fleisch is post-Stalingrad. But then it's all about trying to save the West from Bolshevism, which rather conveniently ignores uh, the fact that there was the Germans who invaded the Soviet Union. Um, okay. And, so, is, and so, is really... Uh, a continuation of Nazi propaganda. That was the shift that, that Himmler himself made uh, late in the war to try to depict the, the defense of Germany as this necessary project. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So you also, I think, emphasize at least in a few points the um, similarities of kind of war novels across across nationalities in terms of the, the discussion of the common soldier. And are there any of those kind of themes that you'd like to emphasize? Uh, well, um, yes, indeed, because um, I think that when you look at 
One of the problems I've one of the problems I've always had with um, with certain Western critics of, um, uh, of of Russian war literature is that they somehow seem surprised when they encounter honest concessions made by Russian writers that Soviet soldiers were guilty of cowardice, uh, there was executions for cowardice and so on, there was desertion, because that rather suggests to me that they had tended to accept possibly the Soviet view that Soviet soldiers were somehow different. And it seems to me that would be completely against what human experience tells us. I mean, it, you know, any reading of war going back to... <coughs> Uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War, for example, right up until, well, now, in 2012, clearly shows that uh, cowardice, um, heroism, uh, self-sacrifice, uh, uh, and terrible suffering are the permanent givens uh, in, in war literature. And therefore, any war literature which uh, seeks to deny these things is really con is telling us that there's a new type of person being created or a new type of psychology being created when all the evidence would clearly suggest that it's absolutely not the case at all. Um, so here we can see the pernicious influence of ideology on, on war literature. And I think also the fact that a number of Western critics have been surprised by this tells me that maybe in some, in some way they have tended implicitly to accept the Soviet view, the Soviet portrayal of their own soldiers um, in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this literature. Well, I couldn't help... Um, I've seen... A, I, I haven't read uh, the novels, but I've seen a couple of the movies, and so I couldn't help resisting. Some of, I can't remember... I, I saw that... I have a copy of the movie Star... Oh, yeah, that's Star, oh, yes. Oh, yes, now, this is an amazing story, yeah. Uh, die in Russian. Yes, it's an amazing story. Uh, you, what do you think of the actual uh, film itself? Well, I, haven't, I haven't watched it yet, and, and I'm, part of the reason is I think, I believe my copy's not subtitled, and so I was sort of holding out to see if I could find one that was, uh, that was subtitled. Ah, oh, right, right. No, I've not, I've not, it's been made, it's been filmed, I think, a couple of times, and there is a very recent version of it as well, I think about 2001 or 2002, the, the, have you have you read the, the story itself, the short story? No, no. No, right. Okay, it, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's, an, it's an, uh, very much an anomalous novel that is, or short story, because it appears in 1946, uh, right after the war, right at the height of the post-war anti-Semitic purges. These are the uh, the Zhdanovshina. Um, and it's a it's a remarkable story. And it really, if you if you change the names and changed the protagonists and got rid of all the German-Soviet sort of conflict. It could be a story of a reconnaissance patrol going on anywhere in, in any conflict. It is truly remarkable. And the other thing that makes it very interesting as well is the supernatural element in it, which I find particularly interesting as well. Um, and there's a, there is a war film which has this as well called uh, The Keep, with that German actor, yeah, Jürgen Pock now. That's quite good. That's an element of the supernatural in that as well. And more recently, it's a sort of black comedy. There's that Dog Soldiers, which came out in 2002. But uh, stars... Yvonne's childhood has these moments where the, these kind of dreamy scenes. Is, does that qualify as well? I'm, I'm casting back to some vague memories. You mean you mean Ivanova uh, Dietzer, Ivan's Childhood by, um, by Tarkovsky. Yes, well, again, a very... Uh, Bogomolov, again, a very, very good war writer as well. But Star, but Star is an, I think, is a, is a remarkable short story. I really do. And it also deals with this theme of that you've got this supernatural element as well, as well in, in the sense that the, 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 the soldier, the scout who takes the horses and uses them for money-making purposes and then doesn't return them, somehow, in some way, he is guilty of bringing on the final death and destruction on this, um, on this reconnaissance patrol behind the lines. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable story, that is, uh, uh, Kazakevich's uh, uh, star. Very, very and good. You have, a, you have a, a good analysis of it in, in your book. The other one is um, that I saw first years ago on an old VHS copy that a colleague had made while living in Japan. So it was in Russian with Japanese subtitles, okay. and I still enjoyed it. And that was Lark, and I, and I won't try the Russian Oh, the, the lark, the in Russian. Where they steal the German, or the you know the prisoners of war steal the German tank and roam the countryside. Ah, uh, yes, very. No, it's not. It's not one I've. I have to say, it's not one I've seen. I must confess. But um, yeah, but yeah, some of these small, some of these short stories which have just dropped under the radar, they have some really interesting themes in them. There's no question about that at all. And uh, uh, in the trenches of Stalingrad is another uh, remarkable novel, given that it was also published in '46. It won a Stalin Prize for God's sake. It's astonishing. Um, and of course, late in the Krasov, as it uh, um, defected to the West, ended up in Paris. I remember I didn't meet him, but I, I managed to write to him a few times, and we had a. 
uh, an exchange of letters upon this theme of remarkism, because he was accused of being a remarkist writer. And so I wrote to him and said, you know, uh, could you explain to me what you think it means by it? We had quite an interesting exchange, actually. It was very, very useful for me to, to be able to talk to him as well, or write to him, I should say. Well, maybe you, can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on now, if anything? Uh, yes, I can. I've just uh, sent... Uh, yes, I can. Uh, my latest book is on Stalingrad, because uh, this year is the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad. And uh, the latest uh, book is the manuscript went off to University of Kansas Press earlier this year, or in fact it was in July. It's about 200,000 words, and the title I think we've agreed on, if I can, we've had some chopping and changing, is The Stalingrad Cauldron uh, Inside the Encirclement and Destruction of German Sixth Army. And the uh, book is likely to be out, I think, in April of next year. Now, this is based upon a huge amount of archive material, uh, which I've uh, got from German archives and, indeed, Soviet archives. And uh, it covers um, the uh, basically there's a, d a very detailed overview of the problems of weather and terrain and exhaustion. Um, then I've got some tr uh, translations of memoirs from the 16th Panzer Division, 94th Infantry Division and 76th Infantry Division. I've got a very detailed chapter on the snipers on the Eastern Front, particularly the uh, great deal of attention paid to the so-called duel which took place between Zaitsev and colleagues in right. Stalingrad. Um, then I've got a chapter on Soviet deserters working inside the pocket, um, Soviet espionage rings behind the German lines uh, run by the NKVD, uh, the problem of uh, German prisoners, and then the uh, detailed discussion of the memoir of a German officer who spent 15 years in captivity, 13 years in captivity, and then returned to Germany and wrote a very detailed account of it. No, nobody's ever discussed this book before, and I've got a detailed discussion of that. And then I've got a final chapter on the theme of uh, reconciliation. So uh, it's, it's really good. I'm very pleased with it. Uh, it's taken a lot of work. And it's now safely located with the publisher, and it will now follow the, the normal production schedule. So it's, uh, it's quite, it's very interesting. Stalingrad, I mean, is, a, is an amazing theme as well in its own right, I have to tell you. There's some very interesting questions which are still to be resolved about Stalingrad as well. Should I mention some of those? So, so please, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Okay, one of the things here that really interests me is, first of all, the question of this duel between Zaitsev and Konigs. It seems to me that the Russians themselves could answer this question quite easily because in Zaitsev's memoir, Zaitsev wrote a memoir about this, or not just about that, it was called Beyond the Volga, There Is No Land, uh, no land For Us. Well, he mentions that when, after Zaitsev, after he had shot Konigs dead, they waited until it got dark and recovered the body and the ID documents and handed, he handed them over to the divisional commander. Well, those ID documents would be extremely valuable proof as to, well, they would certainly support um, the, uh, the, the story of the duel. And as far as I'm aware, they've never been placed in the public domain. So the Russian authorities, if they actually do have these <coughs> um, ID documents of Collins, will be in a position to say, well, here they are, and put them in the public domain. And so far, they've not. Um, the other thing that interests me as well is we know, for example, I have looked at German uh, archive records, uh, Russian returns from Sixth Army, um, and one of the things that emerges here is that there is a, probably at the peak, there's about 35,000 <coughs> Soviet soldiers working for the Germans inside the pocket as so-called Hilfsmilliger, not to be confused with Zugeteilte, attached, they're a different category. So... The question here is, what did actually happen to these soldiers after the German surrender? Now, Beaver, Anthony Beaver speculates, and not unreasonably, that they were simply shot on sight by the NKVD and other Soviet agencies. That possibility, I think, can't be ruled out. But I actually got hold of the 10th NKVD archives in Moscow, and the extent material of this archive, of this division, there is nothing in there at all dealing with um, this problem, mainly because most of the archive was destroyed in a fire, I think, in 47 or 48. But what's particularly interesting here, it might, I, it's, you, one couldn't rule out a mass execution, a Katyn-style execution of these, all these men. But my own, I tend to the view to think that most of them were subjected to this lengthy process of um, uh, filtration. Do you, do, uh, is it, is it, are you clear what I mean by filtration? Not exactly. Uh, okay, well, filtration was the method. It was a standard method used by the NKVD and Smirsch. 
So when, for example, Soviet soldiers who'd been captured by the Germans were recovered by their own side, or when Soviet civilians who'd lived under German occupation for any length of time were once again within the ambit of Soviet power, they were all subjected to a lengthy process of interrogations. And the, 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 the NKVD, the Russian word for this is filtratia. The idea was in a sieve, and the sieve gets finer and finer and finer. So basically, you're winnowing out the ones that have, have, have simply just been surrendered or, or captured for no fault of their own. And what you're trying to do is to look for the ones who potentially were active collaborators, may even be Soviet or German state-hide agents. And so this process of filtration went on and on and on. Now, we, I, I do know, because some of the documents I look at show that there were camps set up, something in the region of 10,000 of what the Russians called former Soviet soldiers. They used this, this interesting, they used this word briefshire, they call them the former. Um, and what happened, I suspect would have happened, is that they would have been interrogated precisely because they were a valuable, regarded as a valuable reservoir of intelligence information by the NKVD. So rather than shooting them on, on the spot, they would have been uh, interrogated to glean as much useful information from them as possible. Then, having gone through that process, they would have been subjected to one of three, one of three outcomes, it seems to me. Execution uh, is possible. Some of them were executed. The more egregious cases of collaboration were punished with the de with death, death penalty. A second option was that they were sent to forced labor camps. And the other option, of course, they were sent to penal companies and penal battalions, where they would then, to use the, to use the standard Stalinist expression, be made to expiate their guilt uh, by paying in their own blood, which is the standard expression that the Russians used. So, so, but until, but, but the point is, I'm speculating here, and until such time as the Soviet, well, the Soviet authority, once again, until such time as the Russian federal authorities publish explicit information on this, it, it remains one of those areas of Stalingrad which is not entirely crystal clear. The other area of Stalingrad, which I still think needs, has still not been properly resolved, as far as I can tell, is just how many Soviet soldiers were executed under the provisions of Order 227. Now, uh, John Erickson, um, he, 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 reckon, he, he speculates, and he, is, he admits he's speculating, he actually reckons that as many as 13,500 soldiers in the 62nd Army alone were executed on, uh, on Chuikov's orders, which I find a remarkably high figure, because if that kind of level of ex execution was replicated throughout all the armies, making up the Stalingrad Front, the Don Front, and the Southwest Front, you would have execution deaths on Stalingrad, in the Stalingrad zone of operations alone, running maybe into... Pfft, well, let's see, maybe 50,000, 60,000 executions. Well, no army can function on that level of execution. So th this is another question that really does need to be clarified once and for all. How many Red Army soldiers were executed by their own side? Okay, because at the moment I've got an, I, my own personal view based upon some of the data that I've got had access to, some of in the public domain, some not in the public domain, suggests to me that the total number is considerably lower than 13,500 on all fronts. But... It's, it's an uncertainty. And the, other, what, the other question I'd like to, be, to have cleared up over Stalingrad as well is what, how many German soldiers actually deserted to, to the, the Soviet side? Because I've not seen any published figures on this at all. And one of the reasons why there probably are no published data on this is because the, numbers of Soviet, uh, sorry, the number of German soldiers who deserted to the uh, Russian side or the Soviet side was probably very, very small by comparison with the number of Soviets who deserted to the Germans. And as a consequence, publishing the full data set merely is, rather makes an embarrassing comparison from, from the Russian, contemporary Russian point of view. But there are some of the areas which are still not, as far as I can tell, properly, have been properly resolved in terms of evidence and data. Well, fascinating. I, I, I normally ask um, the interviewees at, at the end of the interview to um, give me some ideas for other new books to feature. Um, I think in your case, I'm, I, I'll, I'll give you a second to think about that while I explain that I think in your case, one of the interesting services we could provide is to distill out uh, the, the one or two uh, best stories that you feature in your, in your book that are available in English translation and make sure those are featured, you know, provide proper citations on the, on the website so that, so that people can, you know, to remind people about this, this great literature. But, but maybe there's some new book in military history that, you've, uh, that you're excited about that you've read recently. Uh, let's see. Yes, well, there are... There are um, there are a couple actually, but uh, the 
um, but in terms of the, the literature, life and fate is the one I would endlessly uh, uh, sort of um, emphasise to, to your readers. Um, it, it's not it's not an easy read. It's a big, thick, hefty doorstep of a book, a big brick-sized, uh, like these Russian novels tend to be. But it's well worth the effort. It repays handsomely the effort of you know moving through it. Um, so yes, I, I would I would sort of recommend that. The, the, the two books, well, three books eventually which come to mind are the Stalingrad Trilogy by David Glantz. That is something I would urge your readers to take the time and trouble to get to grips with. Have you, have you read it yourself? Uh, not this, I've read others of his work, but not the, not the well, Stalingrad. Well, David Glantz is working on, he's already published volumes one and two of this trilogy. They're out. And I think volume three is in press or due to soon to be in press. I don't, I don't think it's, I, I don't think he's finished it entirely yet. But that is, they, they are of the recent history that comes to mind on, on the Eastern Front. They're the two books that really do, uh, do that, um, really do stand out. Um, I think they're, they're, they're remarkable. Uh, they give uh, um, an extremely detailed operational account of the entire battle from both sides, German and Russian. Um, so I, I, they would be my, off, off the top of my head, they would be my immediate um, uh, recommendation. And another book, if I may suggest one, which is actually, um, it has nothing to do, well, it does actually have to do with the war partly. Um, it is uh, it's, um, uh, uh, Snyder's book, uh, Bloodlands. Have you, have you heard of that? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's one, another one I would recommend as well, because I think that really does, it's a very, very brave attempt uh, a bold attempt, and it largely succeeds to make, to, to make the comparison between National Socialist Germany and Stalin's Russia and, and all, with the, with the suffering of the Holodomor and the Holocaust. He also deals with the, the, uh, the Germans, the dispossession of the Germans at the end of World War II. So that's a book that really recently grabs me as well, I have to say. That, uh, it's uh, very powerful in places, um, uh, very, very, very moving as well. So they, they would be my sort of three books off the top of my head that I would put that I would push your readers to read. Okay, well, that's certainly that's plenty to think about. Those are I know at least the Snyder book, and you 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 mentioned that Life and Fate was a doorstop, so that that should keep people busy for a well, long just, time. Those four novels to four novels together, you could probably build a small shed with a bit still. All right. Well, on on that note, thank you very much uh, for your time today. It's a fascinating, fascinating book, and uh, I hope the listeners will uh, will read it and can and then explore the the literature itself. First. Well, and you can get it, you can get back in touch next year when the Stalingrad books out as well. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for calling. All the best. Now. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now. Bye. This has been an interview with Frank Ellis, author of The Damned and the Dead, published by the University Press of Kansas in 2011. This is Jay Lockenauer. Thank you, New, for listening to New Books in Military History. I hope you'll come back.